conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. Today we have a brand new guest on, David Schaub. He is one of the frequent flyers on the Supergirl Supercast on the Incomparable Network of Podcasts, and I have had the pleasure of talking with him there before, but this is his first time on this podcast. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here. I kind of feel like I'm cheating. This is an MCU podcast. I'm usually talking DC Supergirl, but I think I can make do. (laughs) Yes, we are talking all about Ant-Man and the Wasp today. And this is one of the last few movies that I hadn't covered on this podcast yet. I don't know why, but most of my friends just did not seem as interested in discussing the Ant-Man movies as everything else. So I basically had the two Ant-Man movies left and the first two Thor movies, which that's not as surprising to me, but I'm glad we are going to be getting this one out of the way just a couple weeks before I get the Endgame episode out because this does tie into Infinity War just in the slightest bit at the very end, pretty much. Almost inconsequentially, but it's there. I have to say, I am much happier to be doing this movie than either the first Ant-Man movie or Thor 2. (laughs) Yeah, I think this one was a bit better than the original, and some of that, I believe, has to do with the casting. Because while we still have Scott Lang, Hope Van Dyne, Hank Pym, we have some new characters in the ranks, and we have Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne. And we did see the character of the Wasp a little bit in the first movie because Hank did decide to tell Hope what had really happened with her mother and everything like that. But this really allows her to shine, even though she's not in it the entire time necessarily. You also have Hannah John came in as Ava Starr, Lawrence Fishburne as Bill Foster, and Walton Goggins as Sonny Birch. And I guess he's the bad guy. I mean, there's kind of like not really a big bad villain in this one. (laughs) He is the closest to a true bad guy this movie has, other than lots and lots of henchmen. But you can't really count them. Yeah. And Jimmy Woo is played by Randall Park, and he is the FBI parole officer. So you have these characters that would seem like they should be bad guys in the movie. But really, you know, the FBI is doing their job. And Ghost, who is Ava, she's really just a character who is in so much pain and just wants to be fixed. You know, she worked for S.H.I.E.L.D., presumably the good guys, even though she didn't necessarily always do good things. But it's one of those situations where they try to frame her as the villain. But really, by the end of it, she's just someone who is wanting to find a cure before she dies. She is at least understandable. The thing I liked a lot about the first movie, of the aspects I liked about the first movie, was generally everyone is nice. There was a more definitive bad guy in that movie. But I'm really happy that in the second movie, with these added characters, they've continued to basically add either nice people or people we can at least understand and relate to. Yeah. And as you said, the FBI, Jimmy is a great character. They're trying to do their job, and they're nice about it, and they're polite about it. 
Foster might be a bit of a jerk, but he's trying to do good. He's trying to do what he can to help. Ava is clearly broken and been just tormented. The only person here who is almost a caricature, and certainly played a bit like that, is Sunny, and that's the unredeemable character. And other than that, I just love how nice everyone is in this movie. Yeah, Sonny is really just sort of the grade A scumbag. It's not even necessarily that he's this huge villain that poses a huge threat to everyone. He just wants to steal the lap so he can sell it to someone else who would probably be more of a villain than he is. This continues the style of Ant-Man, where this is clearly a lower-key movie than a lot of the Avengers things. The world is not in danger. The last movie was very much a heist movie, and this movie is very much a MacGuffin movie. And that works. Yeah, you still have those heist elements in this, too. And at the same time, they're trying to pull off this rescue mission for Janet. And those two things just blend well enough together in this to make it so much fun to just sit down and watch. I rewatched it this morning before we recorded this, and I was like, oh, yes, this is exactly as funny as I remember it being. Exactly. They know that the last movie was a heist movie, so they throw a heist movie in cardboard boxes at the beginning. Yeah, so I think we can go ahead and talk more in depth about the story here, because you get this opening scene where even though Scott is under house arrest, he's still figuring out these ways to not only pass the time by himself, but have fun with his daughter when she comes to visit. Because I think due to the ending events in Ant-Man and Scott coming back to save Cassie, ultimately, you know, it would be very, very hard to keep those two apart after that. And we find out that his house arrest has been for two years, and that's coming up. So that timeline all sort of lines up nicely in the MCU. Absolutely. And I do have a major issue with this movie in terms of timing and pacing, but I'll give it it and we'll we'll get there as we come across <laughs> the cases where they just throw in little lines yeah. to make sure the movie actually keeps moving forward. Yeah. And that's sort of the tough thing with the MCU as a whole, I think. And like you said, we can definitely touch on that more when we get to those specific things happening. But, you know, the fact that you have the FBI just coming and making sure Scott is doing what he's supposed to. And the fact that not only does his ex stick up for him, but her husband does too, even though he sort of is like, no, they can do that. Yep, they can come without a warrant. (laughs) I absolutely adore the scene. And I adore it just because how often are we presented in a movie, any movie, where two people are divorced, they have some degree of shared joint custody of a child, and they all like each other. They like the other person's newer spouse. And not only that, but one of them gets arrested, put under house arrest, and that isn't used as a wedge to try and remove visitation rights or something. Right. These people are supportive to the end because they are nice people and they know they're all good people. I adore watching it. I love how they caught up with Scott in the aftermath of Civil War. Even though the movie is titled Ant-Man and the Wasp, I feel like it's important to get that part of Scott's life just quickly out of the way. And then you can focus on the fact that Hope and Hank are fugitives because Scott used the tech and the suit and everything. So, you know, it's 
kind of all his fault that everyone is in this situation, but we find out more fairly quickly after we catch up with Scott that, you know, he's been having these dreams and he sees Janet, calls Hank, at least he thinks he's calling Hank, he's not entirely sure, and then he breaks the phone and next thing you know, he's sort of being abducted from his own home and his ankle monitor is placed on a very, very large ant. (laughs) That ant plays a pivotal role in this movie. Yes, very much so. (laughs) But we also find out that Hope and Hank have been turning to the black market to get what they need. And that's what introduces us to Sonny in this movie. And Hope has been sort of undercover a little, so to speak. She's not using her real name. And, you know, it's one of those things where wouldn't people know what she looks like? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was kind of like, uh, okay, now you're finding out that she's Hope Van Dyne, even though I'm sure S.H.I.E.L.D., FBI, whoever has her face plastered all over with the other heroes they're looking for. In many times in this movie, they put on fairly lame disguises and get away with it. Yes. So <laughs> I think they're just saying we have to deal with that. Yeah, that is true. But I think just the fact that they have had to stoop so low in order to get what they need just shows how much danger they're inadvertently putting themselves in because of the fact that they want to save Janet. And maybe they're not even necessarily inadvertently putting themselves in danger. They know the risks. You know, they're both plenty smart enough to know that what they're doing could get them caught. But because Hope is dealing with this scumbag, he's probably less inclined to call the FBI unless he's giving his FBI moles something to do. Well, exactly. He's looking for what's in it for him, not helping the FBI, per se. He wants the FBI to help him, not the other way around. (laughs) Exactly. What did you think of the addition of Ghost and Bill Foster to this story? Because I think that sort of just adds another element that rounds out some of what we haven't been given about Hank Pym's past, because we know that once upon a time, him and Janet were Ant-Man and the Wasp. So we're kind of getting those two parallel stories in this movie for both duos. And I think Bill Foster sort of just adds to, you know, here's what Hank's past was like, even if he's not really going to admit it. And Ghost or Ava is sort of a byproduct of something that went horribly wrong in Hank's past. While the current movies are kind of all about what mistakes Scott makes, the past seems to all be about the mistakes and things that Hank did. Yeah. And there's definitely some truth to that, though it does seem like in the MCU universe, all scientists are all these horribly competitive people all out for each other. The only thing that's a little unclear, though, is you don't quite know who's telling the real story. Yes. Because we don't quite know how accurate Foster or Hank's description of the past events were. There's some question there, but it certainly adds to it, and it's a nice way of continuing on that there is this backstory of this technology and the consequences of it. And I think Foster is an interesting character because he clearly is not a bad guy or really at all unreasonable in what he's trying to do. He's trying to help someone who was hurt by the technology he helped create. And Ava's just a challenging character because this is someone who's never had a chance to live 
and like other characters that are sort of brought up as a spy and assassin from an early age, they're trying to recover from a very broken childhood. There are a few parallels between Ghost and Black Widow, really, because we saw in Age of Ultron, I believe, more of Natasha's past and how she was groomed to be an assassin. And because the event happened to Ava at such a young age, she didn't really know what was going on. It wasn't something that you could necessarily explain to a child at that point. And she just sort of had to deal with that growing up. And you can tell that later on when Janet is able to help her, there's this big sense of relief. And I think we've seen that in Natasha throughout some of these movies, too, even though not all of them are great in how they handle that character necessarily, Age of Ultron being the one I have many qualms with. <laughs> but you can sense that these characters were both looking for something more. They didn't both just want to be hired guns. And even though that doesn't necessarily tie those two characters together in any way in the MCU as a whole, because I don't really think we'll be seeing Ghost again unless she makes some surprise appearance in Endgame, which I would find hard to believe. I think the character just had so much happen at a young age. It was hard for her to really cope with that. And I think it's pretty amazing the fact that she was able to survive as long as she did because Bill Foster adopted her and helped her along the way. That just proves that he really is trying to do the right thing despite his disdain for Hank. And as far as their stories go, my best guess would be that it's something in between is what really happened. I see it almost as an allegory for things that happen in our world. These are characters that are basically children's soldiers and the crisis and the huge amount of damage that can do to a human psyche. I mean, Ghost in many regards is in pain, child soldier, tormented, abused version of Kitty Pride, And this is what you get with a similar phasing-like capability. And it hurts to watch. But another thing that it acts to mirror nicely in this film is we see Cassie's family and how that family, though divided, there's just so much love and support and strength in that versus what we see in Ava where she has had none of that. And that difference then becomes very sharp in the movie. Yeah, then you also have Hank and Hope's relationship, which has obviously been getting stronger later in Hope's life because of losing her mother, not necessarily in the same way that Ghost did. You know, she lost both of her parents in one go, but you have these characters that have suffered so much. And with Scott and his family, you know, Sure, Scott was in jail, but they haven't lost each other. So I think that's why they basically have that be the somewhat ideal family, even though Scott is under house arrest. You know, they are the strongest of the families that we do see in this movie in particular. And obviously, once Janet is back, you know, there's going to be a lot of reconnecting that happens. And, you know, they don't get a lot of time to do that, apparently. So <laughs> that is one problem that they will be facing soon. I'd say it's the strongest family we've seen in the MCU. Yeah, you could maybe argue that Hawkeye's family is pretty solid because he keeps them away from everything, but we only really get a short amount of time with them. 
They feel more like window dressing than this family does. Yeah. Yeah. This family actually feels important to the story that's being told, especially since Ant-Man really feels like his character and the Wasp, they're kind of living in their own little section of the MCU until the mid credit scene comes around, basically. Yep. What other points do you want to touch on before we get to those credit scenes, though? Because I feel like this movie was packed with so much story coming at you from different directions. You know, you have XCON securities, which I think we definitely need to talk about that because that's just a whole other set of funny situations, especially with, you know, it being Scott trying to run this from home while he's under house arrest and the other criminals sort of get nicer desks, you know, Scott gets a card table and they just do so much with not only Scott trying to have a new beginning, but how he's still trying to help his friends along the way too, because they have the same issue. They can't really get the same kind of job that, you know, Hank or Hope could get if they weren't fugitives. (laughs) Without a doubt, this movie is telling something about the maybe unreasonable effect having a criminal record can have to you on trying to get a real job, and whether that's even fair. But in many regards, they're used for comedy relief, and for the most part, some of the comedy relief actually works really well. I think my favorite being the truth serum scene (laughs) when Lewis just goes off. And that scene, and especially the end of that scene, I just adored. It was just wonderfully done. I think his knack for storytelling worked much better in this movie than it did in the first movie. I felt like in the first movie, it was maybe a little too much because they had him doing it a few too many times. And you were like, okay, but here with the truth serum, it's like, yeah, no, this moment, this makes a lot of sense given the character's personality. And from what I can remember, that's really the only time he goes on at length with one of his stories. And it fits perfectly, and the truth serum is a perfect setup for it. And the ending with ghosts just showing up, and then everyone screaming. (laughs) That's a great moment. Just wonderful. It's funny because it even gives the bad guys a startle, and it's like they're trying to be tough, and then all of a sudden ghost pops up and is just like, whoa, okay, what's going on? (laughs) You know, this person is not with any of us. There are a lot of different things happening in this movie at the same time. You need that in any other good MacGuffin chase movie, and this movie knows what it wants to do, and it does a fairly good job of it. But I think we do need to talk a little deeper into Hope, yeah, and really a little bit of how Hope is treated differently, I think, in this movie than the first one. Honestly, when I first saw Hope in the car with Scott, I was like, oh, you know, they made it look like she had really had a rough time these last two years. You know, she had longer hair and, you know, wasn't necessarily dressed as nicely as she was in the first movie because she was going to work on a regular basis and was, you know, undercover there as well, in a sense. But they really were able to just make it look like, okay, this is someone who has been through a lot in these last two years, and they start unraveling, okay, obviously Scott being in the massive Avengers Civil War had something to do with this, and they haven't spoken in quite some time. And you really get that tension right away, and it's like, okay, I need what's in your head, and we're going to leave it at that for now. But Throughout the movie, you see Scott sort of wearing both Hank and Hope down. And, you know, they have this 
nice moment when they're talking about everything they had gone through. And she makes some comment like, and the other things we were doing, <laughs> implying that they were in a relationship <laughs> together. And I like how they just sort of gloss over that. And you can tell by the end of the movie, it's something that really mattered to her. And I know you have a particular moment that you want to talk about aside from some of the ones I just mentioned. Well, from my perspective, yeah, it feels like they sort of reset the relationship and the relationship does not exist, certainly, mm -hmm. at the beginning of it because there's all that tension. And it seems to, I think, get rebuilt up starting around the time of the school set. In many yes. regards, <laughs> the scenes in the school plays for a couple of jokes. It doesn't work that well for me. But the one thing it really does is it starts to bring their chemistry back together. Mm -hmm. And in that regards, I think it, it really worked fairly well at that moment. And then we started to sort of see their chemistry coming together better. And in some regards, I think it worked better for me than in the first movie. Yeah, I feel like things were happening a little too fast for them as far as, you know, trying to get them into a relationship goes in the first movie. But exactly. because of that two-year gap between what happened in Ant-Man and what happened in this movie – you can tell that a lot has happened in those two years. And, you know, she's a bit disappointed still at the end that Scott didn't ask her to go with him when he went to Germany. And I really like that bit, though, because unlike everyone else who's just annoyed, specifically Hank, annoyed that Scott went to Germany, that's not what annoys Hope. Hope isn't annoyed that Scott went to Germany. Hope is annoyed that he didn't take her that he didn't ask her to go. There's other movies where you have a scene where you think they're annoyed at each other for one reason, but no, you're actually annoyed at them for a different reason. And I don't know if it quite works because the wasp suit wasn't really in the mix at that point, but I really like that that is Hope's reaction. It's a more deep, more interesting reaction than just being offended that Scott went to be the hero. Yeah, it's one of those things where because they introduced Hope to the suit at the end of Ant-Man in either the mid-credits or post-credits scene, I forget which at this point, you kind of wonder, okay, well, that was when she was shown the suit, so when did she actually start using it? Because Scott has been under house arrest for two years now. So at some point during those two years between Civil War and this movie starting, Hope was using the suit. And it makes you wonder if they waited until after Civil War, just so Scott didn't know about the suit. It's really weird with the timeline there because, you know, Ant-Man was in 2015 and then Civil War was out in 2016. So there's not quite a year. I don't know the exact dates for the release dates or anything, but there's a good amount of time to where you would think Hope would have put the suit on at some point before Civil War and that Scott would have known about it. But he's completely surprised when he sees it because he makes that comment, oh, you gave her wings. She gets wings and blasters. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you didn't have that when you made my suit. And of course, Hank easily could have. He just didn't want to. Right. My interpretation certainly is that Scott is not aware of the suit and certainly not aware of the powers of the suit. And so, therefore, I do think that was a surprise to him. Yeah. But it still works, I think. I think Hope getting the suit is just an amazingly important part of this film. Because when I saw the Ant-Man movie, and around the same time, I also saw the Lego movie. And both of these two movies 
have the rookie male experience female trope, yeah. which is basically just Hope was so much more obviously capable. And I was yelling at the screen the entire viewing of Ant-Man saying, put her in the suit. And Scott says in the first movie, why isn't Hope in the suit? <laughs> and in the Lego movie, we have an amazingly capable Lego builder, and she is not the hero. And I just had a great deal of difficulty with that. And the excuse of Hank not wanting to risk Hope, well, he does in this movie, so obviously that wasn't that much of a problem. I'm so happy that Hope got the suit and that we get to see her being awesome in this movie. And she is awesome, and she's probably still more capable than Scott because Scott is still acting the everyman. Mm -hmm. Of all the Avengers and everyone else who has superpowers, Scott's the only person that makes Hawkeye look really special. <laughs> because he really doesn't have any abilities. He just, he knows roughly how to use the suit. He certainly has a good heart. And that probably is his greatest power. But I'm just so happy Hope got the suit. And that's really what made this movie watchable to me, where I don't know if I can go back and watch Ant-Man again. Yeah, I do like this one more than the first one. While I still think the first one is pretty funny to watch, I believe I ended up, you know, giving this one a higher rating than the first one simply because they do such a great job of cementing them as this duo where they're a little dysfunctional because she is so much more experienced than Scott, but they still get along well enough to where it's not super tense all the time. There are reasons for tension in the beginning of this movie. And by the end of it, those have pretty much dissipated and they're working together again. And even though I think Hope knows that Scott will always have his sort of disappointing moments, like when he tells Louise where the lab is when they're in the woods, you know, they're like, really? You told him? <laughs> Scott screws up again. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like you said, he has a good heart, but he doesn't have the brains necessarily. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you're like, okay, you just need to tell Scott what to do and not really explain it much beyond that, at least as far as things with the quantum realm go. <laughs> oh, the quantum realm. Yeah. So why don't we touch on the mid-credits and post-credit scenes here real quick before we talk more about the sort of visual aspects like the fights and the quantum realm and everything like that? Because, you know, the first credit scene, the mid-credit scene is obviously the most important. The post-credit scene, not really important at all, just a fun little moment. And in the mid-credits, we see what happens due to the events of Infinity War. Scott is stuck in the quantum realm because Thanos has already done his snap and all three of them disappear. <laughs> you know, there's no one left to get Scott out of the quantum realm. There's two aspects of this I find interesting. Is one is we've seen Scott get out of the quantum realm before. Yes. So it's possible that he can do it again, though maybe this seat does not quite have the regulator he can invert to make himself get out. But there's also the endgame trailer where everyone seems really surprised to see Scott, and I don't know why. So it feels like there's some aspect of the plot there we're missing. 
Yeah, like you said, because he had come back from it before, I don't think I was personally surprised that he showed up in the Endgame trailer. You know, we kind of know everyone is going to be in that movie. And given the post credit scene, it's like, well, he didn't get snapped because technically he wasn't really present for any of it. I mean, I don't really know where the quantum realm lies exactly. Is it still Earth? Is it not Earth? Like, what's going on? Science I don't understand. Ah, welcome to the land of micro. <laughs> this is actually a little thing in other comics because I read the Micronauts comics. Okay. And they also have exactly the same concept, which is no matter where you are in our universe, if you know how to get small enough the right way, you enter basically a different dimension that exists no matter where you entered it in. It's not like Janet was stuck inside of a chunk of the bomb that fell into the ocean. It's Janet basically went transdimensional into the post-quantum world where you can get to it from some other path. And it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but you just have to run with it. The fact that they are in this thing of, can you find Janet and... Are you going, doesn't matter where you are in the world, but you can somehow get to there, even though all you're doing is getting really small. Eh, whatever. They at least give you a tunnel in this movie to travel through. And a little submarine to do it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where I was like, oh, okay. All right. I guess Infinity War just happened. <laughs> I wonder whether Endgame is going to give us some explanation as to which half the population was picked, and maybe for some reason they just assume because they couldn't find Scott, or there was some reason why they figure he's on the dusted side. But maybe that'll become more clear. Yeah, I wonder if it's kind of like, wait, this guy survived the snap? Really? <laughs> <laughs> that might be fair, too. At least from the minds of the other in Avengers, because I think, you know, a few in particular are not super impressed with Scott, but they're like, okay, I guess this guy is sticking around. <laughs> well, for the people who think Iron Man's just a normal person in the suit, Tony has a lot more going for him than Scott. Yes, yeah, he is a very, very crazy but brilliant man. <laughs> and, you know, for the post credit scene, it's just the ant having his self or herself a grand old time on the drum set. <laughs> Who doesn't want to have fun playing drums? It did seem a bit of a throwaway. Yeah. This is really mostly venture comedy, and uh, they get to play it that way. It did still have a nod to Infinity War in that post credit scene, though. I don't know if you caught a glimpse of the alert on the TV, but it was sort of like, you know, this massive emergency alert, and you had all the crazy color lines on the TV screen and everything like that. And I think it was maybe beeping. I'm not 100% sure on that, but you just catch a little glimpse of the TV there, and you're like, okay, so the ant survived. That's good. <laughs> Well, this is almost like the end of civilization and the channels are basically gone dead. It definitely has that feel. And maybe they're saying something about the ants surviving. It's still unclear to me if half of all sentient life got destroyed or half of all life. So did half all the, all the ants get taken away too? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting to think about. You know, I think we'd have a better idea if we got a look at Hank's lab because he seems to use so many of them, whereas Scott only had one. So, you know, that is something maybe worth thinking about, but probably not important in the grand scheme of things. But do you have any final things you want to talk about before we wrap this up and maybe talk about 
the MCU as a whole a little as far as, you know, where this falls for us in the 21 movies that we have seen now? <laughs> I reviewed my ranking of the movies, and at the moment, Ant-Man is ranked 12th, and Ant-Man and the Wasp is ranked 6th, which is relatively high up. Yeah. I, I really did quite enjoy this movie. I've watched it a couple times now, and I just enjoy it, maybe even more the later times I watch it. The only other aspect of this movie and the pacing of it is there's, I think, three points in this movie where they toss out lines like, the entanglement won't last, uh huh, implying that something has to be done, not just now, but it has to be done in the couple days before Scott gets free. You need some excuse to be doing this ridiculously dangerous thing in terms of Scott's legal status right before it. And then there's another line that's even more bizarre, which is, you have two hours, after that the probability fields will shift and it will be another century before they align like this again. Really? <laughs> so if they hadn't turned the stuff on just at the right time, there's no way they would have ever rescued Janet. Really? There's just multiple times where they just throw this arbitrary and kind of silly time limit on the movie right? because they need that pressure they need that sense of urgency to find yeah. Janet, basically. And the first time I watched the movie, I missed some of those lines. So I'm going like, why in the world are you not just putting this off for three days? <laughs> and it's hard for me to believe that Scott didn't really get caught. It's hard in that regard that the movie had to push this artificial timeline onto us and then push this sort of Ferris Bueller-like attempt to get home. And he has to get home multiple times and not get caught. And maybe Ferris Bueller did it a bit better. <laughs> but the timeline of this and the, the things they need to do, the machinations to enforce the timeline, they push it a bit beyond credibility for me. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think the movie works well and the climax and the chase scenes, even though I'm still constantly wondering about all the innocent bystanders being killed in these chase scenes and the last phasing versus shrinking fight. There's lots of things that really hold together very well. And really, the movie has this tremendous heart. And Cassie just presents this tremendous heart. And she's the one who gives the pep talk to her father that he has to go out there and be the hero, even though she wants to be his partner. I can't help but love the movie. Yeah, and we skipped over some of the visual aspects that I wanted to talk about because I spaced out apparently. So to quickly touch on those, I think they did a really nice job with the dynamics in the fight scenes, especially that opening one with the wasp in the restaurant. And that's, you know, not only the moment where she gets to take out a bunch of scumbags, notably with a salt shaker <laughs> and you <laughs> get this battle between her and ghost that shows us right away everything that ghost is capable of without really understanding why she's capable of those things and i think between this and the first ant-man movie they've really nailed how to have those shifting sizes work to their advantage and the fight scenes look pretty clean and very impressive because you have that factored in that you wouldn't otherwise have factored in in any of the other mcu movies you know no one else is really shrinking down to ant size and then you know to however ginormous scott ends up being in the water i think they did an amazing job generally in the fight scenes and 
sometimes they keep up sort of the comedy element just by making arbitrary things really big and using those as weapons. They thought a little bit, I think, what does it mean for someone who can sh dodge by shrinking versus someone who can dodge by phasing and trying to have that combat where you're really just trying to surprise the other person because that's what's going to get you to get a hit in, not anything right. else. And I really was quite happy with all of those fights. In the first with Hope, we get to see her being really awesome, even if she does the Black Widow-like between-my-legs takedown trope of throwing her legs around someone's head and flipping them over. But hey, it's right. something the MCU loves to present. <laughs> but what really caught me in that scene was when she flies into the chandelier, how this movie is pushing so much the depth of field. And that's what I noticed. Maybe it happened a mm -hmm. bit in the other movie. I can't remember because in this movie, it seemed just so beautifully done. As soon as you get close to something and make it nice and small, they make it look like you're taking it with a super thin depth of field macro lens and everything else is just blown into fuzziness. and. It's just beautiful. You know, when they slow or speed up time, giving you a chance to see what's going on. I just love the look of how they handle really the depth of field as all these vehicles and people get shrunk and then expanded in size. Yeah, I even love how they just give you the Hot Wheels case for the cars. It's like, okay, this is the exact size of the cars. They would look totally normal to anyone, you know, just look like another Hot Wheel on the street that some kid dropped or something. <laughs> and you get that perspective, especially during the car chases. You know, you have the car shrinking, and then it's this tiny little thing, and you see it in the perspective when they're on Lombard Street in San Francisco. You just see how big the brick is in comparison to the car, and you're like, okay, you know, definitely understandable why the person in the passenger seat would be a little freaked out. <laughs> Not only do they change the depth of field, but they also change the frequency of the noises coming from them, mm -hmm. which isn't really consistent, but it works really well because, of course, the car then sounds like a toy car, <laughs> and that, that's where it works <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, definitely. The last visual note that I have is just the stark difference of the quantum realm versus what we see in the rest of this movie. You know, there are so many colors happening in those scenes. You, you have this palette that's totally different from the rest of the movie, but in a way it works because you're in this completely different place. I really like it. You get down to the point where you're almost seeing the single cell organisms and the tardigrades, mm -hmm. which for some reason, they're always showing up in science fiction these days and they're always really big looking because we see them see something that looks a lot like them in Star Trek Discovery as well. It definitely is a almost Alice in Wonderland going off into magic land when going into the quantum realm. Yeah, exactly. So now back to my rankings. I had to search for them and they aren't updated to include Captain Marvel, but I know I gave the first Ant-Man movie a three out of five. I gave this a three and a half out of five. I might be tempted to bump that up to a four after watching it again today just because it was such a fun movie. But right now as my list sits without including Captain Marvel or bumping this up, possibly. This movie is at 12. Ant-Man is at 14. And, you know, that middle range there, I would say really like 8 to 16 on my list is everything that's a three and above for me. Because, you know, Marvel hasn't had a hit every single time, but 
the typical ones you probably expect at the bottom of someone's list or at the bottom of my list. So, you know, everything above those, you know, bottom four or five are enjoyable to me. They are movies that I would rewatch. But I think after watching this again, I would probably bump it up over Captain America, the first Avenger. I don't know if I would bump it up over the Avengers movie. That that would be a little iffy for me, but it's very enjoyable. And if you want to just sit down and have a good time, this is definitely one of the MCU movies to watch. I would say this and Thor Ragnarok, if you want as many laughs as, as possible, are good bets. <laughs> yeah, if you want really an enjoyable movie, they are just definitively enjoyable movies. And maybe this is the one thing that DC before Shazam, just didn't understand that anyone would want an enjoyable movie. But even if you look back to 2008's Iron Man, which I put this movie just under in my list, okay, the value that it showed to us is that a Marvel comic movie could just be enjoyable. And I think this movie also runs with that. And I think it's the main thing that shows what ends up high in my list are the Marvel movies that realize that the movies should just be enjoyable. Yeah, and that's something to credit Marvel with because they've really figured that out with certain characters. You know, the first two Thor movies weren't great, but the third one totally knocked it out of the park and they were able to get a director who really figured out what to do with the character with that story in particular because he's in this crazy situation and then he's going up against one of his friends and his friend doesn't remember being his friend. So, you know, you just have so much insanity happening in that movie. And, you know, with this one, while it's not as absurd as maybe Thor Ragnarok is, you know, it's still one of those things where it's a serious situation as far as saving Janet and Ava, but they're still able to have so much fun with it. And, you know, really in Thor Ragnarok, Thor kind of needs to save the Hulk from, you know, staying the Hulk forever. Saves the Hulk from himself. Yeah, but definitely a good time with some of these Marvel movies. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this one. I am glad someone was excited to, to discuss this one. And, you know, maybe I should have done this sooner, but it gave me the opportunity to do an entire month of Marvel podcasts for leading up to Endgame. And I am really looking forward to how that apparently three-hour runtime plays out. I'm happy to be here. Had great fun talking with you about this movie. I wish you luck on Thor 2. <laughs> Thank you. That one will be happening soon. And to our listeners, you can follow the podcast at Geekdom Pod on Twitter. Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye.